Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. We're with Gidon Lev. Gidon Lev has a special insight into Nazism and the Holocaust and word Nazi because Gidon is a survivor of the Holocaust and I'm talking to him today from his home in Israel. Gidon, thank you so much for joining our podcast today. I'm very happy to do so. Why don't we start at the beginning and how you ended up in a concentration camp and how you survived? For approximately seven years, from 1938, when Hitler took over the Sudetenland, Sudeten, the western part of Czechoslovakia, until the end of war, four of those seven years I actually spent in a concentration camp. That experience, even though I was only a child of five, six years old, left its mark on me, but I survived. And today I am active on TikTok and speak to people, young people, older people about the experience and how to actually prevent anything like that happening ever again, not only against us Jews, but against anybody, anybody and everybody. And it's extremely, extremely important. I was born in 1935, that makes me today 87, almost 88 years old, to a middle-class Jewish family, not observant in Karlsbad, the Sudeten land, close to the German border. And uh, we were doing very well, like Jewish people did in those times at that time, especially in Czechoslovakia. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves being ostracized, dehumanized, segregated, humiliated, and that was as a result of the German occupation, and we can call it the German Nazi occupation, because true enough, not all Germans were Nazis, but the Nazis took over the entire country of Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and then the rest of Europe, as we well know. It was horrendous. It was difficult on so many levels that it's hard to actually tell about it, even though I was only six years old. Of course, because I was so young, there are many things I don't remember. We don't remember our things when we were four or five years old. We remember here and there certain occasions, uh, things that happened to us. For example, I remember, and this is maybe even childish, but that's the reality, going and living in Prague for three years and feeling constant fear and insecurity because every other day the new regulation came out. 
uh, posted by the Germans. One day, everybody who had a bank account was confiscated. One day, every Jewish person had to be at home after eight o'clock. Every Jewish person had to hand in their cameras, their watches, their uh, uh, telephones, and especially their radios. Anybody found with a radio, if, if a neighbor that wasn't Jewish said, oh, I heard, I heard uh, some noise there, it sounded like music, must have been a, a, a radio, the Gestapo would come, confiscate what they found, and take the people, and you would never see those people again. So it was uh, an atmosphere of fear. And even though I was only four or five years old, I, I, I remember being all the time frightened. And then one day, I can remember, and this is specific, that my uh, grandpa took me to a little park near where we were living. I remember there was a swing there and slide there, and I had a favorite swing. It was in the shape of a, of a boat. And I ran to the boat and I and I, I climbed him. And then my grandpa ran after me and said, nine, 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 no, no, no. You can't think that dying. You can't be in here. But, 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 grandpa, uh, this is the way I love to. You can push me. No, no, no. And he and he pulled me out. And I cried and I I I, I was angry at my grandpa. And then he showed me. Uh, to this woman, you see up there what, what it says? Of course, I couldn't read. I wasn't yet six years old. And it said, Juden uh, verboten, Jews not allowed. And I, of course, I didn't understand. I knew I was Jewish, but I, I didn't. What, what does it mean? Why? What did I do? Was I a bad boy? What is it a punishment? Of course, it was a punishment, but not just specifically to me. It was a punishment for being a Jew. And and, and, and that's the way it went. And, and Which is a very hard concept for somebody who is four or five years old. Very hard. It was, it, it was you know, even today, I just came back from, from Prague. Uh, we were doing some filming there. And I uh, the, the feeling of being uh, punished uh, because I was a Jew, uh, it was, uh, it's hard to explain. But this is only one little thing. So I arrived there on December 14th, 1941, on a transport, one of the first transports of women and children from Czechoslovakia. My father and my grandfather were there already to weeks before us, on December the 4th. And I remember, for example, walking. There was no trail uh, line that ended up in Theresienstadt. They went as far as Borusovice, which was a little village, about three kilometers. And if you can imagine, in December, Czechoslovakia is very cold, really cold. And mm -hmm. we were we were schlepping, we were holding on to a suitcase and a, and a knapsack and my mother in front of me, I could hardly hold on to the suitcase. Luckily, there was a man who I guess had a light suitcase and he, he helped me. And then we got to the concentration camp and uh, three kilometers, it took us about 
I guess an hour and a half, freezing cold, terror. And one of the women that was walking, not my mother, uh, called out to the German uh, soldiers that were guarding us, said, so when do we see our husbands? When do we see our, 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 our fathers? One of the soldiers called back, morgen free, um 6 Uhr, ihr könnt ihn sehen auf die Straße, wir gehen zur Arbeit. And in uh, translation, he yelled back, at 6 o'clock next in the morning, you can watch your husbands walking by on the street, going to work. That's exactly what happened. And we arrived there and we were put about 10, 12 people in a small room, bunk beds, two, three, mm-hmm. high. And at six o'clock in the morning, us kids, we were about seven kids in this one room, ran to this, to the window and we, we, uh, we yelled. We saw the men marching by in, in rows of five, 10 and, and uh, soldiers on the side. And they were not allowed to look up. And we yelled, Papa, Dad, uh, Arnold, uh, Moshe, uh, whoever had a name. Yet, of course, they were afraid to look because if they looked, they would be hit with a battle rifle. And that's the way it started. And that kind of of atmosphere of fear and not knowing what's going to happen the next day. And one of the worst things that I remember from that period was hunger. If you can imagine being hungry when you go to sleep and being hungry when you wake up and there's no fridge or cupboard that you can run to like we are. You are hungry. Your child is mm-hmm. hungry. I'm hungry. I will go to the fridge, pull out something uh, get a drink, get a get a piece of bread, and there was no such thing. So hunger was one of the constants of being in this place called Theresienstadt. Believe me, Theresienstadt was not the worst place in the world. There were much worse places in the East. And one of the big things in Theresienstadt was the fear the fear of being sent to the East, even though, and this is very important to know, we did not know that in the East, they were killing people by the thousands in gas chambers, just shooting them in the head and mass, in, in having the people dig their own graves. It, it, we didn't know about this. Germans used the reason shut as a sample camp to show the outside world that, oh, look how we're treating it. They're running their own population. They, they have stores. They opened the whole street. The Red Cross through Denmark came and, and, they, and from 100 meters away, they took pictures. And the Germans had us first set up these stores. Uh, they were selling, they, oh, they printed money, like like. Money was worth like Monopoly money, you know, mm-hmm. the game Monopoly. Exactly the same, with the emblem of, of Theresienstein on it. And they inst- instructed people to go and shop. And what were they selling in the shop for this uh, for this fake money? Was clothing that they had confiscated from the latest arrivals that were still clean and neat and folded and in, in piles of socks and underpants and sweaters and shirts. It was a total show. They even set up, a, I remember they set up a playground. All, all these four years, 
we never had a playground. We could, we we, we played, but we played in, in in streets or in in the yards. All of a sudden, they they put me. I remember uh, on a truck, and they uh, took us to a playground that they had just set up with swings and and slides and, and all kinds of games. And as soon as the Germans knew that the commission, the Red Cross Commission was gone, we they loaded us up back on, onto the trucks and took us back to the barracks. And uh, we have to remember that the Jewish people in Czechoslovakia, especially Prague and places like Brno, uh, were the creme de la creme of the Jewish people. They were educated, they were skilled, they were painters and, and sculptors and musicians and dancers and uh, and poets. Uh, okay, if they let us do something, we'll do it. Uh, today, people ask me, how could they do these things? And that was the answer of the people that were living in, in, in Theresienstadt. As long as we are creating something, we are alive. When we stop creating, we know that death is near. Creation, cultural creation, makes us want to stay alive, makes us hopeful. And the tragedy of of Theresienstadt was that all these wonderful creative people, one day they were performing, the next day they received a notification that they have to report to the train station at six o'clock in the morning to be shipped to Auschwitz or Treblinka or Buchenwald or who knows where. There was such an undermining fear that sometimes I today wonder how were these people able to perform, to sing, to dance, to play, knowing that the next day or the next week or the next month, they may be shipped to their death. But the trick here was by the Germans that the people didn't know it was death. I get one little thing I want to add here. I had a great grandmother who came to Theresienstadt in 1943. She was 83 years old, and she spent two years there, uh, no, two months there. And when she received notification that she has to go to the train station, so my mother and I ran to the train station. It wasn't actually a train station. It was just an open field where the, where the uh, train tracks finished. Mm-hmm. She was standing on the side, sort of away from most of the people, because there hundreds, maybe a thousand, more than a thousand, all older elderly people. And, and as we were coming to her, she saw that my mother was almost in tears and frightened. And, and she said to us, as she saw us, she said, Oi, don't worry, I'm kind of angst. What can they do with me? What can they do with me? I'm an old lady. I'm not an artist vibe. I can't even I can't even even work. Little did she know that she was going straight from the train to the gas chamber. And can you imagine an 83-year-old lady having to undress totally, having been shaved, and then being told, now you're going to have a shower. And I imagine she probably thought, oh, getting a shower, or at least I'll be clean. 
little did she know this was the shower of death. This is a result of the Nazi ideology. It is incorporated. It is wrong to use it as Putin is doing. Part of Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin's justification for this invasion of Ukraine is we need to denazify Ukraine. And the statement in itself, after this explanation that you gave of your experience, doesn't equate to anything that is going on in the current tense within Ukraine, certainly in the way Ukrainian people act or behave. As the war in Ukraine has progressed, the definition of denazification from the Kremlin keeps getting diluted down further and further and further. Is there a danger that the word Nazi is becoming diluted into something that is meaningless? First of all, you know, it's a little bit hard to say uh, diluted. I I don't think it's possible to dilute it. I think Nazism stands as a means of dehumanizing, murdering, planning how to do it on its own uh, vile base. I know at least of two major, major uh, atrocities that the Ukrainians did against the Jews, one at Babi Yar and one in Odessa. But they were not the, the organizers of this. It was the Germans, the Nazis, who organized this in a very Nazi way. Something like 130,000 Jewish people, men, children, and women of all ages, killed within 48 hours, stuck to death. But it was the Germans who organized it. To the smallest detail, from the moment the Jews were taken out of their apartments, what they could take, what they can't take, what will happen to them. To, uh, to uh, They were ordered to take all their papers and their documents that the Ukrainians were used as part of that operation. Doesn't speak well for the Ukrainians. But things like that happened all over. And Odessa even worse. But in general, the Ukrainians were like Russians. Let's remember only that Hitler, in his major first attack against the Soviet Union, destroyed what? Any and every village, town that was underway. And they did it very efficiently. This was the Nazi ideology. It was not only against the Jews. I know that. We all know that. It was against the Slavs. It was against the... The Romani. Uh, uh, yes, uh, anybody who was not a pure German, pure, two, three, four generations back, it is something that can't be diluted. Even if Putin says, I am going to stop them, that's all bullshit. And, you know, the bigger the lie, the more... People believe it. Why? Because it becomes so unbelievable that somebody would say or do something like that, that it can't be the truth. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. 
I think you brought up a very important point. The history in Ukraine from 1940 to 1945 is very complex. I think we have to acknowledge if we talk about that, if we throw in Poland and we throw in Belarus, the history of that whole area is very complicated. When the Germans invaded Poland on September 1, 1939, they did it in concert with the Soviets and with the assistance and help of Stalin. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And 16 days later, the Soviets came into the eastern part of Poland and had almost their own little mini Holocaust. And this spilled over the situation within Belarus and the situation within Ukraine, because in part, these areas were part of the Soviet Union. Yes, as most things are, they're complicated and not simple. And if we look a little bit at the history altogether of the Soviet Union and of, of uh, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, part of the, at one time uh, was actually Podkapatskerus, was part of Czechoslovakia, the eastern part next to, next to Slovakia. So it was all, because there isn't a clear line here. You live only only Russians that were born here, here live only these, they're called Ukrainians. It was all, all mixed up. Look, Putin today is doing what people uh, like him did beforehand. Stalin, Mussolini, and Hitler, all trying to remake a huge empire after the end of the First World War, all these little nations like Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, Austria, Hungary, all of a sudden, they were in existence before, but were part of an empire. But the empire broke up and the empire lost the war. All these countries said, now we want to have our own country. What's wrong with that? You have Germany and you know, I, I spent half now in the last uh, couple of years, a good amount of time in Germany because I have some very good friends there and even a friend that survived the Tennisstadt that I hadn't seen uh, in, in 70 years. And I traveled by train and I said to myself, why did Germany need to go to war? There is such a big, beautiful country. What the hell did they want to more. That's what I have to say as, as far as the, the, we don't let Nazism stand on its own feet. It was bad enough. And the communist ideology that made Stalin take Russian prisoners of war and send them by the millions to the east, to Gulag, because he decided that they were traitors because they didn't fight to the death. Luckily, <laughs> but one one bad guy is not replacing another bad guy is not great. Why do you think there is this movement? Not just in Russia. We're seeing this around the world of people embracing authoritarianism. For example, in Russia. There are people that embrace Stalinism. The Russian government, starting in 2011, started to rewrite Stalin's history to put him in the light of national hero. Why is this? Good question. I'm not sure I have an answer. 
I don't know, people sometimes need to feel that they have to follow a leader, I guess. He, he must have been great. Otherwise, how did he win the Russian Revolution? How did he unite all the Azerbaijan, uh, Ukraine, Belarus? Uh, uh, how did he do it? He must have been a very special. He was special, but he was evil. Hitler too. If I put him on a scale, on a scale I don't know if you can work out which is worse, who was worse. They, they, they are in good competition with each other. Is the Kremlin's use of we are denazifying Ukraine, is this just a cynical excuse on a long list of cynical excuses? I go back to the fact that he approach is we must, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, Trump's man, we must make America great. He wants to make Russia great. He sees Russia as, as a huge, never mind that it's the biggest territorial country in the entire world, even as it is, without Ukraine, without Belarus, without Azerbaijan and, and and, and all those uh, other little countries. The fact is, the world in its history, in many occasions, in many times, over thousands of years, has many times suffered from these egocentric, sometimes even brilliant, but hugely destructive people. We have to be wise enough and guard enough and aware enough and fight back and be prepared to put ourselves out there and to say, hey, what are you saying? What are you doing? Look at the people that are, are suffering because of what you said or what you did. I've lived almost 88 years and only in the last seven, eight years have I become as outspoken and as active in fighting hate, violence, humiliation, atrocities, killings. My God, if I can do it, other people can do, especially the young. And that's how we got to TikTok. We saw people are reacting 80% positively, but 20% are hateful, are terrible. And we can't let them get away with it. So here we are. For our audience, Gidon and I connected, it's been like a year and a half, almost two years at this point. I know you were one of my first mutuals on TikTok, you and Julie. Uh, and one thing that our audience, if they're not on TikTok, is not going to know is that Gidon is full of joy and it is infectious joy. This pulls people in to his community. You are a very charismatic individual. One of the things that you have expressed repeatedly is your hope for the future and your belief as things may look as grimy as they look, the world isn't on the same trajectory as it was, say, in 1932. Why, why is it you feel that way? A couple of things that I have to say to this, and that's this. I just feel that in 1930s, the changes that were taking place were so horrendous and difficult that people were actually suffering. And 
because the communication at that point was nothing like we have today, people felt very isolated and very left behind and very not, not involved so that things could take place without them even knowing. Today, we have a situation that I can say something here now and within a half a minute from now, somebody in Australia or New Zealand will say, no, I saw Gidon, he said this and this, we should listen to him. Or no, he's a liar, he's making up things. So there's this tremendous change. And, you know, I don't believe in absolutes. There are no absolutes. But that I would say, I allow myself to say, there are two absolutes. One is death when you six foot under. The other one is change. We can't prevent change. It is a phenomenon of, of nature that is all the time. A little bit more, a little bit less, a little bit louder, a little bit quieter. It takes place. And when we talk about what's happening in America, and when we talk about what's happening here in Israel, do you think for a moment I'm happy with what's happening here? I'm not. I will do even at my late age as much as possible to make it better. There's things to be done. And there are people who can do it. And I don't allow myself not to be hopeful. There are a group of people that use whataboutism to minimize the injustice that is happening somewhere else. We have seen what's happening in Ukraine, starting with uh, Bucha. And I'm going to tell a personal story here, Gidon. Our organization, this one's going to be a little tough for me to get out. Our organization was one of the first journalist organizations to validate the videos that came out of Bucha. Um, We got a hold of the videos here on April 1st uh, in Seattle. And uh, we couldn't believe it. To your earlier point, um, when something is so horrible, so over the top, your reaction is, this can't be true. This just can't be true. And we as a team started working to validate on it and analyzing the videos and looking to see, you know, and we had reached the conclusion, these are real. And then there were more, because it wasn't just the one street. There was more. It was just starting to pour into us with people sending us stuff. And my wife came home just within two to five minutes after we had reached the conclusion as a team. And she came into the office, she looked at me and said, what's wrong? And I just fell apart, absolutely fell apart. Because I had never seen brutality like this. Is it hard for you to watch what is happening in Ukraine, to, to see things like, you know, like Bucha and to learn of mass graves and systematic rape and the things that are happening there. What is this for you? What is this for the survivors of the Holocaust community? I can only speak for myself. I find it horrific. I, 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 I don't even think there's a right word that can express the horror of some of these things that we see 
that's taking place there, the horror of brutality, the horror of killing. No war is clean. The extent to which it is horrific and dehumanizing depends on who the people are who are doing it. Let's talk about your book a little bit. Your book came out a couple of years ago. The name of my book is The True Adventures of Gidon Lev, Rascal, Holocaust Survivor, Optimist. When my wife of 40 years died 12 years ago, I had a lot of time on my hands and I had uh, friends and a couple of relatives who from time to time we get together and I would I'll tell them a little bit the story of here, story of there, not necessarily about the Holocaust, about my life. And uh, they said, you know, Gidon, this is a good time for you to sit down and write. Why don't you write? So I did. And then I decided to move from the periphery of Israel, where I had been living for 40 years, down to the center here to Ramat Gan, Tel Aviv. And I said, okay, now I have about 70, 80,000 words. Maybe I can somehow make this into a book, but I need an editor. I was a thousand percent lucky to meet Julie Gray uh, in a coffee shop after being uh, uh, given her phone number. And uh, I told her, look, I wrote uh, this book about my life. It's also about the Holocaust. But not only, she said at first, no, 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 I know nothing about Holocaust. And I write, I edit fiction and I write. I said, okay, well, let's let's think about it a little. Fact is, she came back to me, called me up a couple of days later and said, you know, why don't we have another coffee? And, you know, it was quite clear that this was somebody very special. Not only was she younger, but she was lively and she was friendly and she was outgoing. And I said to myself, wow, she's actually somebody I think I could really work with. And we started, uh, she changed her mind. She took up the challenge and she turned to uh, the computer and she got uh, a lot of uh, people who were prepared to help us out and to transcribe and to to check and to uh, it was amazing and that's how the book was born and the book was born also from the fact that as we were working on the book the, a very caring and loving relationship developed with us and that's part of the book so the book isn't only about my story but also the story of writing the book and our relationship. And hopefully we've finished filming a documentary about, about me and uh, with the book included in that, that uh, it will take off. We've been talking with Gidon Lev, who is rascal, Holocaust survivor, and optimist. Gidon, thank you so much. Do you have a date on when the documentary is going to be released? No, we do not have a date yet, but we finished the filming. So now the hard work is is uh, taking place 
and we haven't heard yet from our producer any time schedule. And uh, Yaniv Rokach, who is the uh, producer, he already has a documentary called um, Queen Mimi. Gidon, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I am walking away from our very heavy conversation with a smile on my face because, as I said earlier, your optimism is infectious. And I know people are only listening to your words. They don't get to see you. If you're on TikTok, you should look for the true adventurers and follow that account because Gidon's optimism is absolutely infectious. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you, you. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.